Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. This past Wednesday, I gathered with some friends of mine to watch the season finale of season 43 of Survivor. For those of you who are asking the question, yes, Survivor is still on every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock, and every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock, I am faithfully there to watch all that Survivor has to give me. And so as they crowned their champion of the season, they gathered all of the participants of this social experiment game contest show all together. And they were talking about some of the highlights and lowlights of that season. And they spoke in particular to, to one of the young women in the show, uh, Noelle Lambert. And Noelle Lambert um, is a Paralympian. Uh, she is missing a part of her left leg. And she was able to participate in Survivor and, in fact, won one of the challenges that the individuals competed in. And she had to do so uh, without the use of her prosthetic leg for a large portion of it. It just wasn't working out for her. And yet she powered through and did an absolutely amazing job to come back and win that challenge. And many of the other players were saying how inspirational that was for them, that this young woman uh, beat them with two legs, with her only having one. And they were talking about how inspirational it was. And then the host, Jeff Probst, still the same guy from the very beginning of Survivor. If you've missed the past 42 seasons, you haven't missed much. Or you've missed a lot, depends on your perspective. But, but Jeff began to ask uh, some other people what inspired them. And it came to one of the other contestants. And she said the person who inspired her most was herself. That when she needed to kind of get through the hard days of Survivor, she just looked inside and inspired herself. Now, hearing that out loud, hearing that on Survivor this week, I was a little bit shocked. And the reason I was a little bit shocked was because she said the thing that we as a culture quietly believe out loud. The world around us, from advertising to the way that we're educated, from entertainment to the way that we take in social media, all of this encourages us to center our thinking on ourselves. We are the source of our own truth and inspiration. We are the captains of our souls. We are the ones who really matter. And it affects nearly every area of our lives, but nothing more specific than our relationships, whether that's with your families, whether that's with your friends or a spouse. In all of these cases, the question we often ask ourselves, whether out loud or quietly, is how is this relationship benefiting me? Our choices are typically made with one person in mind, me. And this is true for us across the board. This is true for us whether we're Christians or not. This is true for us uh, whether we're rich or poor, whether we are old or young. The way that we have been trained and discipled to be individualist cuts through all of those distinctions. It's one of the few things that we can all be united on, and that is that the most important person in the world is me. Now, I might not say that out loud, 
I might not tell you that, but I believe that. And I think a lot of times you do too. The problem with this is that this sort of individualism is deeply hostile to the Christian faith, to the virtues of Scripture. Individualism teaches us we need to care for ourselves. Christianity teaches us that we need to care for our neighbors and the widows and orphans. Individualism teaches us to get what we can. Christianity teaches us to give up what we have for the sake of others. It teaches us that it's better to give than to receive. At its root, under all of our our fancy language, after all of our sort of phrases and maxims, here's what individualism is. It is just pride in stage makeup. Our individualism is just pride, self-centeredness, selfishness, dressed up to look like something nicer and better. And that strikes at the whole point of what Advent is all about. As we reflect on this time of Jesus coming, we remember and celebrate his humility. As we sing these songs, how many of the songs that we sing around Christmas are songs that reflect the humility of Jesus, that he was born in a manger, that he was born in straw, that there were animals all around his hospital bed, if there was such a thing as a hospital bed back then. Jesus, who didn't think of leaving the riches and ease of heaven, but instead, he set those things aside for our sake. Paul holds this up as the pinnacle of humility, that the God of heaven would step down, take on flesh, and walk among us. And yet one of the passages from the Old Testament that is clearest in showing us what the birth of Jesus was going to be like is also a passage that deals specifically with individualism and pride. Beloved, here's what I want you to hear this morning. We have to begin to repent of our pride and our hubris in imagining that we ourselves are in any way self-reliant. So if you're able, I would invite you to stand. I'm going to be reading Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 16, a passage that many of you will be familiar with. And we're going to hear the words of the prophet Isaiah. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask for us, ask a sign of the Lord, your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. And I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. For the boy, know, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. City Church is the word of God, written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. When we think about this passage, most often we think about the fact that the angel uh, used this passage to talk to Joseph, and we're going to get there. Don't worry. That's where we're headed. But before we get off on that stop on the subway, we need to think about what was happening at this time. Ahaz was in a tough spot. 
The kingdom of Judah, which was where he was king, which is where Jerusalem was, was surrounded on all sides by enemies. To the south, you had Egypt, which was a global superpower. To its north, the northern kingdom of Israel, who was a little bit upset at the southern kingdom of Israel and was threatening them. And then again, to the north and to the east, you had the kingdom of Assyria, who had already conquered almost all of what we know as the Middle Middle East. And so Ahaz, king of Judah, king in Jerusalem, was nervous. What is he going to do? Enemies on all sides. Their trade relationships had been broken with all of these other kingdoms. So now the people couldn't get the food that they needed. They were impoverished. They were starving. They had war that was imminent. Somebody was going to come and try to wipe them off the face of the map. And so God had sent Isaiah to Ahaz on several occasions and told Ahaz, listen, I know it looks rough. I know when you look out from your eyes, when you look out from Jerusalem, all you see is problems on every side. But listen, I will be with you. You don't have to go and find another way. The way that will keep you safe is a way of trusting and following me. Well, Ahaz had other plans. He decided that it wasn't enough that God had promised to protect him. It wasn't enough that God had promised to be with them. Instead, he went out and decided that he was going to make a treaty with the kings of Assyria. And the kings of Assyria said, we absolutely will make a treaty for you if you give us tons and tons of money. Well, Ahaz didn't have tons and tons of money. So what did he do? He told the people, okay, I know you're starving, but taxes are going up. This is a story as old as time. He raised taxes for everybody in the kingdom so that he could send this huge payment to Assyria to protect them from the other nations around them. And then God comes one more time. He comes one more time to Ahaz to say, don't do this. This is a bad idea. This will not end well. And that's where we find ourselves. That's where the verses that we are reading picked up this morning. Isaiah comes to Ahaz and says, listen, God said that you can ask him for a sign. He said you can ask him for anything. It doesn't matter if it's high as the heavens are above or as deep as Sheol is in the ground. Just, just ask God for a sign that this is a bad idea. And I promise he will give it to you. He's giving Ahaz one last chance, one last, please, this this will not end well, I promise you. And Ahaz says, no thanks. Ahaz says, no, I I would rather not ask God for a sign. And then he does something really strange. Ahaz quotes the book of Deuteronomy. He says, you shouldn't put the Lord your God to the test which is interesting because when Jesus was tempted, that's the exact same thing he said. So why does Ahaz say that right now? Well, it doesn't take much to look underneath the mask here. Ahaz has already decided what he's going to do. He is going to pay the protection money to Assyria. He is going to get them to be his protector. He has made up his mind. Ahaz quotes Deuteronomy, because he's a hypocrite. He is sure that the best path forward is to ask for Assyria's help because he thinks that's the best path forward. If God were to give him a sign, like like an eclipse or a tsunami, what would Ahaz have to do? Ahaz would have to change 
his plan, but he doesn't want to change his plan. So when God asks, hey, let me give you a sign that this is a bad idea, Ahaz says, pass. He says, how about no? I don't want a sign because then I'll have to change my mind. He couldn't outright say, I have no concerns or care for what God wants of me. No, I just want to do what I want to do. People would freak out if he said that. He's the king of Israel. So he does what so many of us are accustomed to doing. He hides his prideful, self-interested decision behind religious language. He's unwilling to look at the spiritual implications that abandoning God and trusting in Assyria has. He doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to look at that. Instead, he just pretends to have religious motives for refusing God's side. Oh, I, I, I could never. God doesn't like to be tested. Why would I ever do that? This pretending is exactly what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy in us as Christians is when we go to the make-believe world and just start pretending. Religious hypocrisy is dressing up our selfish motives, desires, and actions with the clothes of the language of Christianity. It's drumming up a Bible verse to justify something that we have already decided to do. And now it's easy to kind of bury Ahaz, to laugh at him, to say, look how foolish he looks. But if we're being honest, if we kind of take an account of our heart, what we find is that we are probably more hypocritical than we like to admit. We know exactly what we want. We know what we want our life to be and where we want our life to go. We have already decided what that direction is going to be. And instead of seeking input and wisdom from Scripture on whether or not it is a good idea, we just slap a Bible verse on our intention and motives. We just say, ah, yes, this verse gives me cover for anything that I want to do. We pretend to be spiritual in order to mask our selfishness. We play the part of a good Christian to hide what's really going on in our souls. And often we do this with passion and vigor. But like the phantom of the opera, we don't want anybody to see what is happening beneath our mask. We don't want people to see beyond our ability to quote the Bible or, or make good theological arguments. We want to keep the mask of hypocrisy on. And that's what Ahaz wants to do. That's why Ahaz refuses the sign that Isaiah offers him. But God sees through him just like he sees through us. And Isaiah's response is, is swift and also in a lot of ways ironic. Isaiah speaks to Ahaz and his whole family, says, Oh, house of David, here's what's going to go on. And he starts with a rhetorical question. Is it not enough that you have wearied your people with these high taxes and now you're wearying God with your hypocrisy? If we are willing to admit that we as Christians struggle with hypocrisy, it should be a pretty stark and sobering warning that God says that hypocrisy is wearying to him. Like a stubborn child who refuses to listen like the sound of metal grating against metal, 
like the sound when for me a fork touches your teeth that ting that is grating and wearying and you will do anything to make it stop this is how god sees hypocrisy this is how god finds my hypocrisy and so even though god has or ahaz has refused god's offer of a sign the irony is god says to him well guess what i'm going to give you one anyway you wouldn't ask for one fine I still have one on deck and you're not going to like it because this isn't going to be a happy sign. This isn't going to be a nice and, and lovely thing because God is sending judgment. And the judgment that he's sending, he says, is that there's a woman in your kingdom who is right now a virgin who will give birth to a son and she will name his name Emmanuel. And before he is fully grown... God is going to overthrow the northern kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Assyria. All of these things that you are doing that think make you look strong, that make your nation look strong, all of your plans and intentions are going to look foolish. Because before this child is old enough to understand right from wrong, these kingdoms are going to be overthrown and your kingdom will lie in ruin. This child is a sign and a warning. God is among us. And we're so used to, because we sing Christmas songs, because we go to a Christian church, because we've heard this story a thousand times before, we're so used to God being with us, being a comfort to us. But there's actually a level of judgment. There's actually a level of the fear of God that Isaiah is trying to evoke here. God is with us and he's not gonna let your hypocrisy stand. God is with us and he's not going to continue to allow you to play the game of religion. No, he is serious. And that's what the sign is all about. God is going to come. He is going to be God with us because he is going to come to judge the hypocrisy of Ahaz. And not only that, but this child will eat curds and honey. Now, oftentimes for us, we hear that and that sounds an awful lot like milk and honey. And so we assume that this is a good thing. Oh, this kid's eating milk and honey. That's pretty good. But we see later on in this chapter that, that curds and honey are not the food of the rich. That's the food of the poor. That's milk that has curdled and gone sour. Milk that you can find in a bucket left behind by a farmer. And that's not honey like you and I get out of the little squeezy bear at the store. This is wild honey that you have to go and get yourself out of a literal bee's nest, a bee's hive. This is the food of the poor, not the food of the rich, because Ahaz's hypocrisy doesn't just hurt himself, it hurt others as well. And then finally, Isaiah puts the time stamp on his prophecy. Now, that phrase that he uses two times at the end there, before he knows how to choose the good and refuse the evil, uh, is a little bit of an odd phrase, but most people think that that refers to that this is going to happen before this child's bat misfa. It's going to happen within 13 or 14 years. And so it does. And so Ahaz becomes the last independent king of Israel. After him, all of the kings that come after him for the rest of the Old Testament and all the way into the New Testament, all of these kings, whether they're from David's line or not, all of them are puppet governors. The kings after him are completely on the leash of Assyria. 
And then when Babylon crushes Assyria, Babylon comes in and crushes the kings of Israel as well. They deport all of the citizens. And when the Persians come in and let the people come back to the land, guess what? They're still paying tribute to Persia. Persia still has them by the throat. And except for a short time where the Maccabees kicked out the Seleucids, it's a long story. Ask your friends uh, who practice Judaism to tell you about that story. It's the story of Hanukkah. It's this week. That was the only time where Israel was independent over the next 900 years, and it swiftly ended when Rome came in. Isaiah gives the judgment to Ahaz and the house of David, and it comes true. But the story of this passage doesn't end there. Because the angel who came to Joseph picks up on this passage as well. When Joseph was deciding that he was going to quietly divorce Mary because she had been found with child, what passage, what comfort does the angel give to Joseph? He comes to him and says, no, 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 no. Remember that story of judgment against King Ahaz about the child named Emmanuel, the child that was born to a woman who is still a virgin? Guess what? That's actually about Jesus. That story is actually about the son who is in Mary's womb. God isn't finished with the house of David. There is a truer, better Emmanuel. And just like the first Emmanuel, he came under, the, under poverty. He came under rule by an unjust king. But instead of being a sign of pride and judgment, Jesus, our Emmanuel, comes with deep humility. He took on flesh and dwelt among his people. Just like God was wearied by the hypocrisy of Ahaz, Jesus' most demonstrative and strongest words were for the religious hypocrites of his day. Those who used religion as a cloak for their pride and arrogance. Those who draped Bible verses over top of their self-interest. Those who used theology to justify their lack of concern for others especially the downtrodden. And so Jesus comes as God with us. But the story doesn't end with the incarnation because in Philippians 2, Paul gives us this full picture of the humility of Jesus, of the story of Jesus giving up heaven, of leaving the ease and splendor and riches. Jesus deeply followed this humility to the end, to the point of even death on a cross. Jesus came to break the cycle of hypocrisy and pride. But he doesn't do that simply by yelling at us. He doesn't do that simply by saying, stop being prideful. You can't, it's the whole stop thinking about elephants thing. What are you thinking about now? Elephants, you all know that. God doesn't come to us and just say, stop it, fix it. Rather, Jesus comes and takes hypocrisy onto himself. My hypocrisy, your hypocrisy, he paid the price for on the cross. All of our self-interest, all of our selfishness, the judgment for all of the times that you and I have hidden behind our religious mask was nailed with Jesus to the cross. His death paid for my sins, but it also broke sin's power over me. If we're trusting in Christ, we have a chance to follow a new path, a new direction, not self-interest, not self-inspiration, 
not the stuff that we're used to, but something new, something different, something apart from the hypocrisy which comes so naturally. God is calling us to a path of humility and faith, a path where we don't have to fake it, where we don't have to pretend to be a better person than we are, where we don't have to pretend to be a better Christian than we are. Instead, because of this humility that is born in our hearts, we live a life of faith and repentance day by day by day. As we consider the story of Emmanuel, of God with us, we begin a path that starts with our repentance of our selfishness and hypocrisy. Beloved, God is with us. We don't have to pretend. He already knows and invites us to trust and follow him. Let's pray.